Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, Dr. Laurie Turnbull joins us to check out the international situation with our Prime Minister and Minister Sejan and Jolie over in the UK and, of course, in the European capitals. We'll give you the latest on that. Uh, does the arrest of WNBA player Brittany Griner in Russia spell a future of how Putin will deal with the West? Bruce Kidd, former Olympian and professor at U of T, will join us to talk about that. And some good old-fashioned speculating about the NHL trade deadline. I always look forward to those conversations with John Matisse from The Score. It's all coming up at the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. I know a lot of people were very, very happy about the fact that a number of uh, corporations have decided uh, to jump into this with uh, certain sanctions against Russia. Not everybody is playing ball, though, and there's some pretty uh, important names and familiar names uh, that are saying, well, we'll think about it. So we'll give you that in just a little bit. Also, a uh, American basketball player has been detained by Russia for allegedly being in possession of narcotics. Uh, is this a uh, hostage for politics uh, situation once again developing? We'll certainly delve into that. And as we mentioned, lots going on with Ukraine, uh, including uh, uh, a number of different things going on down in the state's capital of Washington. And Reggie Cicchini from Global is going to join us later on in the program to talk about that. But let's get the Canadian perspective on this, too. Uh, the Prime Minister, uh, as we speak right now, is over in London uh, meeting with Boris Johnson and, and of course, the, the Dutch Prime Minister uh, to talk about uh, ways that NATO can uh, ramp up their support for Ukraine in this crisis. Uh, that's one of many stories that we want to cover in the next couple of minutes. And uh, to do so, uh, pleased to welcome for her, her weekly visit, uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, Director of Social School of Public Administration at Dalhousie University. Uh, Laurie, always a pleasure. Hope you had a good weekend, all things considered. Hey, Bill. Yeah, I think so. I think it was pretty good, all things considered. <laughs> I hope you did, too. Yeah, absolutely. Except for the, the windstorms. But uh, hey, you know, that's southern Ontario for us. Let's, oh, let's talk, first of all, about the, uh, about the trip overseas. Uh, some eyebrows were being raised by this, like, you know, is this really a worthwhile trip? Or is it just a photo op? It's it's kind of a whirlwind thing. He's going to be in London. He's going to be meeting with some other uh, European leaders about this, too. Is, is there any benefit to the prime minister sitting down with these other leaders to plan strategy? Uh, I mean, possibly, right? Like at this point, the prime minister and the cabinet are going into a two-week break in parliament, so they don't actually have to be in the House of Commons for the next couple of weeks. And so for that reason, it probably does make a bit of sense for him to travel if he can. And there's, I mean, we're at such a critical moment and trying to determine next steps for NATO as the economic, economic sanctions are being ramped up and there's pressure to go further and do more. Um, you know, it might make sense to sit down and have some face-to-face -face meetings. And also there's a new German chancellor. And so even for that reason, it, it might be beneficial rather than just have a Zoom call to actually sit down, be in the room, pick up on body cue, you know, body language, you know, see what kind of personal relationships can be developed here because, the next few days, weeks are going to be critical in, you know, containing the situation. There's an op-ed piece in the New York Times over the weekend that essentially, I think, laid the groundwork for that. And that's uh, maybe one of the reasons why it would have been beneficial. Uh, they basically, uh, they said, look, at you can't let Putin win. That, that's the bottom line here. Whether it's going to be economic sanctions or, or no-fly zones or whatever, you can't allow him to win because of the message that would send to, to other uh, renegades, I guess that we could even call them around the world. Is is? Do you think that's the bottom line here, as far as NATO is concerned, too? Well, I mean, I think it's a really good point because even it, there's there's the message that it would send, as you say, to other renegades if if Putin was to have a sense of getting away with any of this. But there's also Putin himself and what his next move would be in the event that he was able to make any kind of what he could call success. 
in what he's doing in Ukraine. And so I think, you know, the, the whole point of NATO is really on the line here. If partners, you know, given the, the depth and the breadth of the consensus between NATO partners at this point and the strategy that they've taken to try to contain Putin and his advances in Ukraine, it is going to be a, a point of reckoning for NATO if they can't contain this. And so I think it, the whole thing is on the line. And, and again, as I say, like what, what happens if he was to call this a success, if his occupation of Ukraine, his completely hostile and illegitimate invasion of Ukraine was to be is something that he put in the win column. What would come next and how would we respond to that? Well, I mean, we only need to look at a map, don't we, to, to see, you know, what's going on here. I mean, just look at all these countries that were part of the former USSR. Uh, and, you know, yeah. you got a window, the old domino effect, which one's going to be next? I mean, if he's successful here in, in getting rid of Zelensky and, and putting whomever he wants in government here, he seems bent on doing that right now. You got to wonder where he's going to direct his attention next. And and if that's the case, then you have to ask yourself, where does NATO draw the line then? Well, that's it, right? And and also the fact that um, you know the nuclear plant was hit on Thursday, that <clears throat> tells us too that while there is definitely a critical risk for for the countries around, for the sense that he's trying to rebuild an empire here or build one of his own. There's also a, you know, regardless of geographical location, there is a, there's a global risk of, of epic proportions in the event that we get into a, a you know, a nuclear territory here. And so not, no one can afford not to be paying full attention to this, right? Like it's, it's absolutely, like we, we are all absolutely at risk of this getting out of control. It's already out of control. Uh, we mentioned that the prime minister is over in London right now, and, and as you mentioned, a couple of other uh, uh, European cities over the next couple of days. Uh, Foreign Affairs Minister Melanie Jolie is also over there talking with NATO counterparts. Uh, officially, uh, the line we have from her office is to coordinate response to Russian invasion of Ukraine, uh, I, which leads to the question, I mean, what's on the table right now? I, I mean, they, they have told us time and time again uh, that there will be no military confrontation with NATO troops and the Russians. Uh, they've told us that there will be no fly zone. Uh, but if they're trying to respond to the Russian invasion and, and the incursion as it continues, uh, is anything really off the table? I mean, that's it, right? Like they continue and like Anthony Blinken keeps saying the line, you know, we will defend all NATO ta territory, all NATO soil. And so sort of continuing to remind Putin and others that the, the, I think the, the point of that reminder is there is nothing off the table, but they really don't want to go, go to a direct military conflict because of the possible implications of that and things escalating very quickly and in a way that is, is a risk to the world in you know, a really, really frightening way. But at the same time, I mean, we're watching the, the economic sanctions being turned up and turned up and every day there seems to be another layer of it at the same time as, as different countries around the world are equipping Ukraine with supplies that that they need both military and humanitarian and all different kinds of things to try to help them fortify and be able to continue the resistance that they're mounting on the ground. But if this keeps going, there's, you know, uh, you know, eyes are on NATO to say, what else are you going to do? And at what point is there going to be something else necessary? But I think, yeah, like, at, I mean, people want to want to back down, not back down. People want to avoid an escalation that would, could become a world war. And we have, you know, there's lots and lots of analysis about <clears throat> the effect of the, the Americans' position in the world and how, you know, after the Cold War, they were the, they were the big power and how that's transformed over time. And now here we are with this, this you know, in, like in, encroachment of Putin in a way that I think we all kind of saw coming 
but you know, we're hoping it wouldn't, but this was like, he was never going to, to not veto Ukraine's uh, entrance into NATO. I mean, this, this is something that, that Putin has been out there with a long time. And so here we are. Uh, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray, has been uh, quite outspoken. He addressed the General Assembly, of course, in in the United Nations in New York the other day, uh, and has done a number of different interviews. And and one of the comments that uh, the ambassador made that I thought was rather telling, uh, he says it's it's blatantly obvious that Putin has broken international law. I mean, those it's, you, know, you do not invade a sovereign country, especially because you want to denazify it, where there are no Nazis or not, not in government anyway. Uh, but he says laws are only as good as, as your willingness to enforce them, uh, which was a very, I think, germane point here. Uh, and and I know some of the people in Ukraine right now are saying, are, are you really, you know, talking the talk here? You know, it's, it's one thing to say you stand with us, uh, but you're just standing by and watching this happen. And, you know, is it is it inevitable that we're going to have to at some point ramp this up a little bit and, and call Putin's bluff in a situation like this? Yeah, I mean, the ICC prosecutor has indicated that they're, they're going to be investigating p- possible war crimes here. And so there are different levers, you know, just kind of to go to your point about <clears throat> enforcing the law, there are different levers to do it. But, you know, if at some point, like, you know, if, if you're in Ukraine and you're fighting for your life and your family's life and you're being told about economic sanctions, like how comforting is that to you? You're like, no, like, where, where is the ammo? Where are the guns? Where, where is, you know, an actual response that's going to turn things around in a very short period? So I think it's sort of like that. I, I assume that those are some of the conversations the prime minister and the ministers are going to be having when they're abroad is the management of time and when things have to take another direction because, you know, the losses that are going to be experienced as we're waiting for the effect of economic sanctions to come through when Putin is coming, right? It wasn't like he wasn't prepared. And so is the turnaround time on those things going to be enough to stop what he's doing? Because they're not going to have a deterrent effect. This is not a reasonable person. This is getting too expensive. I'm going to stop now. No, right? Like, I don't, I don't think there's an off ramp for this guy. And so he's going to keep going. And there's a question of whether the sanctions can effectively choke off what he's doing in time. And if not, then we need to, to come to grips with here. And, and again, this is just based on the reporting we've seen over the last couple of days, I guess, uh, even these sanctions uh, that that you know the United Nations and NATO and and, and nations are are starting to to yeah. leverage against uh, the Russians are maybe not as as strict and and as as demanding as we suggested. I mean, you know, the, made of the fact that you know American Express and Visa and Mastercard have all stepped up and and they're canceling uh, their work with the Russian banks, uh, which sounds great. Until mm. you find out that well, the Russians can still use those cards if, within Russia, uh, and and we also found out that you know since the Russians were banned from the international banking system, uh, that China has a similar system that they're simply say offering to them. I mean, China is a, a player in this whole situation right now. I mean, as, as the world and NATO may have uh, you know the back for Ukraine, it seems China has Russia's back on this. Yeah, and that's it, right? Like as we see the applications of these sanctions, not as um, perhaps you know as effective an instrument as we hope. They're not necessarily as precise an instrument as we would hope. There are ways around, and so that's when you know people start to say, okay, well, having the effect that we wanted. And sometimes when a corporation makes a decision like that, the effect is is sort of on two levels, right? Like it's there's the practical implication of not being able to access a service anymore. It's like the the public shaming around a corporation say we like we'd rather not actually do business in your whole country because that's how much we condemn your actions. But Putin doesn't care. It's it's not the same as as other 
you know, kinds of gestures of to the same effect when they happen in other matters of international politics. He's really operating in a different kind of parallel universe. And so these a lot of these things don't have the same effect as they would in other situations. So you have to wonder not just about the efficacy of them, but I mean, you know, whether or not there there does have to be another step. And and I know we all dread what that other step might be. Uh, but you know, to, to Ambassador Ray's point, you know, you got to call him out on this. Uh, you know, for some reason, there's got to be some justification for for step, stepping up and saying, "Look, you know, I, just looking at the pictures here. I mean, you know, the the, the what, what 1.5 million, I guess it is now, have crossed the border." Uh, and and the Soviets are doing what the Soviets or the Russians usually do. I mean, they, the the story this morning, of course, is they've offered safe passage to some of these refugees, but it's into Russia or Belarus. Yeah. Uh, they don't want to go there. I mean, that's yeah. you know, it, it, what what are they asking for here? You know, and I, I'm just wondering. There's got to be some discussion. I know these guys don't want to make public statements. I saw Blinken on all the the news shows on Sunday morning as well, uh, being you know very definitive about the fact that, well, there will be no direct engagement. Uh, but you got to, I'm getting the sense now, look, Putin's looking for a fight here with the Americans. Well, yeah. And I mean, even when he says, like, he, he said things to the effect that he takes economic sanctions to be an act of war, he would take a no-fly zone as an act of war. So he's sort of like, yeah, I mean, he, it's almost like he's waiting there, waiting for an opportunity and, and hoping that this engages. And I mean, it would just be, when you think about that, like, I mean, depending on on how much people have, have been thinking about the Cold War, things like that, and, and the different implications of that. I mean, it was it was such a, a, a rife time in, in human history, but there was a peace to it. There was a detente to it. And then when that collapsed, the you know, there there's a really interesting article in The Atlantic about the the implications of American hegemony. And, you know, even though in many ways it, it, it was problematic and it was wasted in some ways and they, you know, in, entered into situations like Afghanistan, for instance, and that was a nightmare. And but at the same time, now that you see that kind of change and you see a bit of, of a, a lack of leadership internationally, it's really putting the pressure on NATO to show its value. And so if this can't be, you know, if, the, if NATO can't show how as such a huge alliance and there's such a broad consensus, you know, if it can't get this right, I think we're really in a, in a critical point in international, in, you know, in figuring out how we're going to align the international order so that we're able to keep peace. Well, because there are already some deep-seated and probably legitimate uh, concerns about the efficacy of the United Nations over the last number of yes. years uh, when it comes to global conflict, uh, you don't want to see NATO fall into that uh, that category as well. But you know, it, I, I get the sense, though, Laurie, this is a very pivotal week coming up the next six or seven days. I completely agree with you. Yeah, and it does go back to the the relationships between the leaders and the purpose of NATO itself as as a different kind of international organization than the UN, right? Like its purposes have always been very different. And so is it equipped to handle the challenges that we're facing now? And you know, the like in for the prime minister for instance, like, you know, I I can remember, I'm sure you can remember when he when he first became prime minister and he was the new kid on the block. Now he's like one of the most experienced leaders around and you know, in in the on the globe and Macron is playing a very interesting role here. So it's an opportunity for Canada. I think while NATO partners are agreeing that they don't want to hit that military button, it's an interesting opportunity for Canada to play a leadership role, specifically because of the role of Christia Freeland and her expertise on the file. It's There is a way for Canada to really come into its own diplomatically. There's a big space for us to play here. 
but then our role is going to shift significantly if there is a turn to a more heavy military response. Exactly. Uh, Dr. Laurie Turnbull, uh, Laurie, as always, thank you so very much for this. Uh, stay well. We'll uh, talk again in a few days, I'm sure. That sounds great, Bill. Take care. Take care. Dr. Laurie Turnbull, of course, from Dalhousie University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I want to come right into the uh, the backyard of Hamilton once again. And this is uh, as we head into a, a provincial election in June, uh, and probably even more importantly, a municipal election uh, coming up later on this year in October. Uh, the past performance of this city council, of course, is going to be under the microscope. And one of the things that is going to come into play here uh, is what we not so affectionately refer to as Sewergate. Uh, there's a, a brilliant piece written about this uh, recently that uh, we want to talk about right now. Uh, Nathan Whitcock is a freelance journalist for the New York Times, the Globe and Mail, and the Walrus, uh, contributed to all three of those fine publications. And he's wrote a, a definitive piece, I would think, of what actually happened to Sewergate. And uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to talk about this. Nathan, thank you for the time. Great to have you with us today. Thanks, Bill. It's great to be here. Well, great piece. Uh, the, the, I, you know, it's, as we saw this unfold, and of course, as you mentioned in the piece, we and in this community, and especially in the media, didn't find much out about this until sometime after the fact. That's a story unto itself. Uh, but, you know, we have one of the great areas here, and I love the way you put this into context for those who may have forgotten. Uh, oh, yeah, Coots Paradise, what's the big deal? Uh, the rest of the world knows Coots Paradise, of course, and you've listed it's almost half a page of the designations uh, for this uh, area <laughs> because, uh, uh, you know, we, we know, of course, about, you know, the herons and the cormorants and the turtles, uh, the endangered species. It's a national historic site. It's an important bird area, an important reptile and amphibian area area of natural and scientific interest, an environmentally sensitive area, and a provincially significant wetland, among others. Uh, I guess the thing that bothered me about this, and yet, as it was occurring and as we found out more about this, uh, and, and you touched on this, is the response from some of the people on Hamilton City Council when they finally admitted to this, uh, the fact that there were billions of liters of, uh, of sewage dumped in here was, oh, it's a polluted area anyway. Too bad that it happened, but, you know, what are you going to do? Uh, that's right. What? I mean, their their original plan was literally, well, yeah, we, it's probably worse to move it, so let's just leave it where it is. That's that's mind boggling. It is. It's pretty astounding. Uh, I mean, you know, you mentioned there's a provincial election coming up, and I do mention in the piece, to their credit, the uh, the provincial government, the ministry did say, no, that's that's not good enough. You actually have to go back and figure a way to clean this this place up so and, and you know yeah, what's interesting original... about that we, we talked about that at the time i'm glad you brought that up and it's an important part of the piece uh this provincial government especially does not have a stellar record when it comes to environmental issues uh and we, that's another piece you could probably write reams and reams of, of stuff about that but for mm -hmm. them with that record and that mindset to step into hamilton council and say oh no you're not that tells you the, uh, just how important and how severe this was oh absolutely i think the the impulse and this is you know based on looking at those those reports that were that were hidden from the public that the council hidden that the council hid i think their real impulse was just to cover butts was just to to hide all responsibility figure out a way to sort of quietly deal with this and not go any further with it and the province yes it does have credit does deserve credit for pushing the city to actually come up with a an actual plan not just a brush your hands and walk away plan but as the provincial auditor noted, and I, I put this very last minute in the piece because I was writing the story as this auditor report came out in the fall, 
the province didn't tell anybody either. I mean, the ministry yeah. didn't announce that this was a problem either. They they sort of went along with this with this cover up. And, and and kept it quiet for quite some time, as a matter of fact. And I know mm. there's some you know finger wagging that was going on when this finally did uh, see the light of day. And a number of counselors, uh, you know, kind of, you know, chastising some of their fellow counselors for this. But they were all complicit in this in some way, shape or form, because they all I don't know if they swore a vow of silence or whatever, but they they tried to keep this under wraps for quite some time. I, I don't do you get this, they're just hoping this would go away that no one would notice. I think that's the case. I think it, it somewhat of it relates to the conversation I had with Chris McLaughlin, who is uh, yeah. the head of the Bay Area Restoration Council. Um as I mentioned in the piece as well, he was very insistent on the idea that, that there is the political issue, which was this cover up, which was this sort of immediate le- leak, the you know the four and a half years that it was leaking. But then there's the larger problem, which is just how we treat water, period, and, and specifically how we treat the Shadok Creek, all the things that get poured into the Shadok Creek, the sort of raw wastewater, the water going into Coots Paradise. All of those pre-existing that leak that began in you know January 2014, and I think this is my sense. This is not what Chris said, but my sense is that a lot of councilors, a lot of people in the city, were worried that really being open about this particular leak, this four and a half year sewer gate leak, would lead to bigger questions about well, how are we treating that water? How are we treating Coots Paradise? This this thing, as you say, that has all of these you know, very important sounding designations internationally. Um, it, it might force people to say, well, even if this leak happened, it wasn't like we were treating that body of water particularly well. Well, and, and that's interesting. And and because and, you're right. I mean, I, I was glad. I mean, we all know about the political end of this thing and you know whether or not there's going to be any ramifications of that. I guess we'll find out uh, in October when this, the, the municipal election takes place. Uh, but the slant you took on this was, was about attitude, about the provincial and, and municipal attitude towards waterways and, and environmentally sensitive areas. And, uh, you know, for those of us who have lived in this area for quite some time in the Hamilton area, uh, Coots Paradise was was in pretty crappy shape for the long time because governments of all stripes just didn't pay any attention to it. No, if it dies, it dies. So what? Uh, we got smarter about that, and and I think we've made some huge strides in in trying to rejuvenate uh, Coots Paradise, and and that's thanks to people like Chris McLaughlin and so many others who've worked diligently on this. Uh, and it I, one thing you brought up in the piece here that I think is so very important is this is not a local issue. Uh, this is an international issue. Uh, those that are concerned about this, and we should all be concerned about environmental issues, they know what Coots Paradise is. They know of the story of it. And they were shocked, as you point out in the piece, as everyone else was, that this happened. No, absolutely. And, you know, when I when I met Chris McLaughlin, we, I, I interviewed him actually outdoors for about an hour on the, uh, the York Street Bridge, where you can look down onto yep. Coots Paradise. And he insisted we, we chat there because he wanted to point out you can look to the horizon. You can look way up to, toward Guelph. All of that area feeds into Coots Paradise. That's that's goes beyond the watershed that feeds into Coots Paradise. So it's not just a local, you know, neighborhood issue. Oh, we spilt some, you know, some raw sewer water into into this little marshland. Oh well, well, we'll clean it up or we won't. It's 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 the kind of issue that should touch. You know that touches an enormous area of of uh, southern Ontario, the enormous kind of tract of land, and it's not the kind of thing that you can just 
again, close the gate, brush your hands, walk away. It's a, it's a lasting problem. Well, because we've had Chris McLaughlin from the Bay Area Restoration Committee on the show many times too, uh, and I'm always great to get his input. And he's so dedicated to to preservation and and trying to keep entire environmentally sensitive ecosystems uh, vibrant. And and there's been a lot of work been been poured into this right now. Uh, but again, you mentioned the attitude, and you mentioned about uh, you know the the creek itself. Are we still, or are there still some people, not just in Hamilton but in other municipalities? that are still looking at our water systems uh, and not as ecological gems, but as just places to get rid of, of garbage? Oh, absolutely. I mean, there was a, a debate in council and, and it's still kind of been put on the back burners, as far as I know, about um, putting in a new system for some, you know, Ancaster neighborhoods because they were getting a lot of, um, a lot of flooded basements during high storm season. And they wanted to create a bypass that would feed into Shido Creek. And this was, again, adding to the very problem that the city is paying, you know, potentially billions of dollars to try to fix. It's still going on. It's still, I mean, the council has kind of put it aside, that plan aside for now, but it hasn't been completely thrown out the window. There's still this mindset. And it's not just, again, it's not just Hamilton City Council. It's not just local attitudes or something. It's not like we're unique in, in treating water this way. It's right across Canada. It's right across North America. This idea that, well, it's it's water. We can just throw something into it and it'll wash away. It'll disappear. It'll clean itself. Uh, and that's, it just doesn't work that way. Water is a, a kind of living organism. It If you put something bad into it, if you put poison in it, if you put sewage into it, it destroys it. It 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 kills the things that are living in it, which kills the things that are feeding on the things that are living in it, and eventually we don't have it. We don't have it to enjoy. Well, and I know the argument on the other side of that is going to be, yeah, but we've made huge strides to try to to clean that up, and they do treat this before. I mean, I mean, this this was an illegal dump, certainly, uh, but by mm-hmm. but by nature, we do this anyway. You know, our wastewater, we we run it through a system, et cetera, and it ends back up, you know, where it came from, uh, from whence it came. Uh, but they, they, you know, they said they've got the testing materials and they've got the data to show that it's clean, it's safe to drink, yada, yada, yada. But that is not state-of-the-art technology anymore, as you point out in the piece, uh, from the work that was done by Professor uh, Zelbia Jawad at McMaster University, uh, there's 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 a better technology, and she referenced the, the example of California, uh, about recycling only 10% of their wastewater, not just all of it dumping into a pipe. So I, I guess the question here is, are, are we still, and that's not just Hamilton, most municipalities are doing this, as you mentioned. Are we simply doing that because it's it's the, the least expensive method, or do we really and truly dedicate ourselves to doing the best possible job and exploring other methodologies? I think the, the, the first answer has to be, it is the least expensive. I mean, even those that tank that that spilled out in Trudeau Creek that caused this particular problem, as I note in the piece, like that was supposed to be the sort of hero of this whole story of cleaning up natural waterways around Hamilton in the sense that building these would hold on to a lot of that wastewater and stop it from getting into, uh, you know, Show Creek, Coots, Paradise, Red Hill Creek, whatever it is. But those things overflow. We get we're, we have more water coming down and more water melting. I mean, you can look outside today to see how much yeah. water uh, goes into the uh, goes into the sewers. 
so that those are just short term short term solutions for for a very long term problem. And you're right, the Professor uh, Joed's uh, research and the things she was pointing out, it, it's 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 back to that attitude uh, question of if we really want to be serious about this, if we really want to stop all of this wastewater going into the sewers and ending up in natural waterways, we actually have to put less water down there. And some of that might mean recycling the water that we that we waste, uh, at, you know, in a local way, as opposed to just sending it somewhere off somewhere else to be treated. And it's a little bit hard to get our minds around that. It sort of brings up images of Kevin Costner in Waterworld drinking recycled pee or something like that. We start thinking, well, we don't want to drink. We don't want to flush the toilet and then have that in our glass of water later. It's it's difficult for us to get around that that sort of gross image that we're drinking recycled water, but that may be where we have to go. And the technology exists where we can do that completely safely and in an entirely clean way. And and I think one of the, the as I as I read the piece, one of the I, I think intended consequences here was to make us think about uh, not from where we've come. I mean, I, I can still remember. Well, we still get water warnings uh, just on the other side of Coots there in Hamilton Harbor. You know, don't swim in the water nine times out of ten. It's because of bird feces. But there are other things that are going on there. And I know it's not as bad as it was twenty five years ago. We acknowledge that, and you acknowledge that. But I, I get the sense here that one of the things you're asking the reader to do here is stop thinking about where we came from. It's where do we want to go from here? And and uh, right now, uh, we, we seem to be stuck in neutral. We do seem to be. And it's also another part, point of the piece is to stop thinking of this particular problem, you know, problems like this spill or a spill anywhere as something that one city council can fix or will be fixed by a change in a, you know, after a municipal election or even a provincial election. It's sort of on all of us to rethink this and to, to advocate for longer term solutions. Well, exactly. And and we've done that in, with other technologies in other areas uh, when it comes to environmental issues. But <laughs> this is water. And I, this is long. This is not a new story. And I, I, I what well, your perspective on it is. But, you know, we've been talking about this for years and years and years. And mm-hmm. I remember years ago talking with uh, uh, General Richard Romer, retired, of course, uh, who's written a number of different novels. One was about the, uh, the next world war. And he says it's going to be based on water, water, fresh water. Canada has an abundant supply of that. And and I get the sense, you know, when we see stories like this, that I think we take it for granted an awful lot of the time. Oh, you know, we've got t- lots and lots of it. No big deal. No big, well, it is a big deal. Yeah, we we have a tendency to be, we're, we're, we're spoiled here in terms of water. And we tend to see it as an infinite resource. It will just keep coming up out of the ground. It will keep bubbling up. We, you know, we can't even see the other side of Lake Ontario. So how could we possibly make it dirty? And yet, you know, who is ready to go swimming in Hamilton Harbor this morning? You know, who's or when it gets a little warmer? We know that any size of water can get polluted. Any size of water can become unusable. And eventually that will overwhelm our ability to clean it up and drink it and use it in any usable way. So it's better to to, to look at technologies and look at methods that solve that problem at the source, which is, which is us. Exactly. Well, it's a, a great piece. Thank you so much for the work that you did on this and, and pointing us in the direction about, you know, what's going to happen going forward here. Uh, invite our listeners to check it out. Uh, you can uh, go to the webpage for The Walrus and uh, see Nathan's article there. Thanks as always, uh, Nathan. Uh, take care. and We'll talk again soon down the road. Thank you. I appreciate it. 
You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of concern, I think legitimate concern too, about the arrest of WNBA superstar Brittany Griner by Russian authorities. We are told that she was arrested in Moscow on drug charges at the airport there and could face up to 10 years in prison. There's an awful lot of speculation about what's going on and what the implications of this may be. And uh, to address that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Bruce Kidd, former Olympian, of course, and a professor emeritus in sport and public policy at the University of Toronto. Uh, Bruce, a pleasure to have you back on the program. Thanks so much for the time today. Well, thank you, Bill. Let me ask you right off the top, Bruce. I mean, we're we're still shaken, I think, by the the, the two Michaels and what happened in China. Uh, there's uh, some parallels being drawn here. Is uh, mm-hmm. uh, this is another example of hostage diplomacy between the Russians and and although the time frame of the the invasion of Ukraine may not necessarily match, uh, tensions were high. Is that a legitimate concern? Yes, it is. It's a very upsetting case. There's very little information available about what's happened to her. Uh, it seems that she's been locked out for for over a month, and uh, th- there's no information about what legal support she's getting, uh, why she's not out on bail, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So, in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine, it has all the marks of uh, the two Michaels. Well, and you raise an interesting point about the length of incarceration so far. Uh, we, we have a, a social more and I guess a legal more in, in this country, of course, the justice delayed is justice denied. Uh, it seems over there, Bruce, uh, justice delayed is the norm. I can't speak for the Russian legal system, uh, but from a Western perspective, uh, there's so much that's wrong with this. It's very frightening. Uh, she's a widely admired player, uh, the star of the U.S. Olympic basketball team over and over again. Uh, It's just horrible that she's ended up this way. And she's being arrested, apparently, for for, uh, possession of a drug that's legal in many countries in the West. And we have no evidence that those those drugs weren't planted in her, her luggage. And, and that's a legitimate point. These are only allegations at this stage. And uh, the fact that it's been a few weeks now that she still remains incarcerated and uh, there's been nothing released, except, I guess, for the video that many of us saw, uh, you know, and this was at uh, security at Customs, I guess, in the airport. And uh, we see uh, that there was a package that uh, that the custom officials took out of there, but we don't know how it got there. And, and we're not hearing anything at all from, uh, from uh, Brittany's family or from U.S. authorities. Uh, this is when something like this happens, Bruce. This is when... Uh, all of a sudden, the diplomacy kicks in like this. I know Antony Blinken uh, was was asked about this. I know he's focused on Ukraine right now, but this is a story that that requires uh, attention from from this particular case, the U.S. government. Uh, what do they do in a situation like this? How do they establish contact and some sense of dialogue? Well, this is an unprecedented situation when uh, many countries like Canada and the U.S. are pulling back uh, their Um, diplomatic staff when they're imposing sanction after sanction after sanction upon Russia. And uh, it's a very difficult time to uh, ask for permission to see uh, someone who is in jail uh, for an alleged uh, drug violation. I don't know what staff is there in the U.S. Embassy in in Moscow. Um, I would think that uh, many of them have, have already left. So 
it's it's a very vulnerable situation uh, for Brittany right now. If we can draw parallels with the two Michaels and the Chinese situation, I, I would imagine one of the first priorities, at least somewhere near the top of the list, must be to establish contact with her at this stage by with U.S. officials. Uh, you know, a face to face. How are you? What's going on? That sort of thing. To my our knowledge, I don't think that's happened yet. That's what I understand too, and that must be frightening. Can you imagine uh, languishing in uh, jail under terrible conditions when you may have heard that a war is going on? where your own government is imposing uh, draconian sanctions upon the Russian state, uh, when your jailers are probably taunting you. Um, it's, it's frightening. In the case of the two Michaels, uh, there were extraordinary difficulties, but at least our two governments were in direct contact with each other. Uh, right now, the U.S. Was, is withdrawing uh, from uh, from all of its Russian contacts. So it must be trebly, quadruply frightening to be in this situation. It's horrible. It is. And as you mentioned, you can only imagine what's going through her mind these days. But she was known to the Russians. I mean, that's one of the interesting wrinkles to this whole thing. She she played over there in her off season here with the WNBA. She went over and played in Russia, as many other uh, U.S. athletes did. So she was she's a known commodity. And, and I would imagine, at least in, in athletic circles, known over in Russia. I agree. She played there for seven years. She last played on January 29th. I don't understand why her team isn't uh, banging down the doors of the jail, asking uh, that they be allowed to see her, uh, sending in legal uh, representation to bring her to a court. Uh, I would like to think there's a Russian equivalent of habeas corpus. Um, under the war uh, conditions, though, it may be that her team has been uh, been threatened by the Russian state. But, you know, so there are all these questions and uh, and she's languishing in jail. It's really frightening. Uh, yeah, I, that was surprising to me, too, that, that her club over there uh, has said nothing, at least publicly in a situation like this. Uh, she was, uh, well, and still is, I think, since, as you mentioned, she just played a, a few weeks ago, her last game over there. Uh, she's a star player. She's arguably the best player in the in the WNBA on this uh, side of the ocean. Uh, and considering a superstar over there, too, making over a million dollars just in her Russian salary alone. So, I mean, they're they're targeting somebody here who's who's a star on both sides here. And you really have to wonder uh, what the end game is for, for the Russians. It's all unprecedented, Bill. Uh, I mean, in our lifetimes, we haven't seen a war of this kind. We haven't seen the extent of sanctions imposed on another state, at least. I mean, I was born late in the Second World War. All of the parallels are from that period. This invasion uh, strikes most uh, historians as very much like Hitler's invasion of Poland in 1939, uh, when uh, the West just simply cut off uh, everything from from Germany. We're seeing the same thing now. And of course, uh, anyone who's left behind, uh, they're vulnerable. If they've been arrested, uh, they're, they're doubly vulnerable. If they've been arrested in a totalitarian country without legal representation, they're trebly or quadruply vulnerable. Uh, boy, oh boy, I wish there was a way that we could get support uh, to this uh, amazing uh, athlete and person, 
um, in in Moscow, but uh, under these circumstances, I I don't know exactly how to do that. Bruce, do you get it when you hear a story like this a sense of almost deja vu? Uh, and, and going back to your your competitive days when you were competing internationally, uh, that those the Cold War was still going on and going on strongly. I mean, well, in '62 there was a threat of the Cuban Missile Crisis. There was a threat of war that was imminent. I mean, we used to have air raid sirens in our cities here in in Ontario. It was frightening to to actually live through that. I certainly did, and I know you did. Uh, then we there was a it seemed to be a meeting of the minds and the well as the Russians call it gladnos. In other words, let's agree to at least cooperate. It seems like we've taken a huge step backwards right now. And when that happens, as as you noticed when you were competing, uh, you don't know who to trust. I'm just going to uh, close that off. Uh, yes, yes, it's frightening. It's frightening, uh, and you don't know who to trust. And, Sorry about that, Bill. It's okay. Go, go ahead. Uh, you know, in the 1960s, even under the Cold War, there were there, there were athletic exchanges and there were uh, there were attempts in the sports world to lower the temperature by inviting athletes from both sides by by sending tours uh, of. Uh, of coaches and, and academics back and forth and an effort to keep the conversation going. But, uh, you know, and even after the Soviet invasion of, of, of uh, Hungary in 1956 and uh, Czechoslovakia in 1968, most channels of, of communication and athletic exchange were kept open. There were a few exceptions. Some people boycotted the 1956 Olympic Games because of the Russian invasion. But for the most part, there was an effort to keep the communications within the sports world going. But um, this invasion has changed all that. Uh, this invasion has mobilized quicker than I've ever seen before uh, an effort to isolate uh, Russia in sport as in everything else. I mean, the only parallel in my lifetime is the anti-apartheid campaign, where yep. sporting nations and organizations uh, sought to isolate, isolate white apartheid uh, South Africa in sport as a way of dramatizing our abhorrence of, of their racial discrimination and to give the majority black population the, the, the comfort that the West the rest of the world was on their side. It took 20 years to build that 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 isolation to completely exclude South Africa from sport. This happened in a week, in a week. That is unprecedented. I think the fact that Russia has been so dishonest in the last few years, this was not its first violation of the Olympic truce. It happened after Beijing in 2008. It happened uh, after, after Sochi. And then there are these cynical uh, doping violations, the open cheating uh, again and again and again. So I think that uh, it's not once bitten, it's five times bitten that has made the sports world act so quickly. But this is unprecedented. I don't think any of us has a, a clear idea of of how we can build back what, what we had. And certainly there's no appetite for reopening communication uh, with Russia in sport right now. But with those, and in the past uh, crises that you just talked about, 
the international sport bodies were, shall we say, reticent uh, to actually bring the hammer down. I know that they did ban Russian athletes with the largest doping scandal, but they rescinded that for the most part and said, you can compete, but just not under the Russian flag. Uh, but you ca- juxtapose that, Bruce, with, uh, with the, the decision just a couple of days ago, of course. Initially, they were going to allow the Russian athletes into the Paralympics and then said, no, absolutely not. You're not allowed in here, uh, w- which I think surprised an awful lot of people that they were that adamant about it. Well, I think that's that's a good example of what we're talking about. The 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 old argument, the old um, effort, idealistic, to to keep the conversation going and to some way ensure that all interests in sport were embraced and given opportunity as a way of encouraging dialogue and lowering the temperature and all that. Um, and that's what the IPC initially tried to do by uh, allowing. Or, or saying that they would allow Russia and Belarus to compete in Beijing. But within, within hours, uh, it was clear that that was no longer going to hold, that there was so much anger uh, about Russia and Belarus that uh, if, if the IPC persisted, there would not be a Winter, Olymp- Olympic, a winter Paralympics. And I think that's, that's the new world that we're in. Uh, Russia in particular, has um, has violated international understandings in sport and in politics so flagrantly, so many times in recent years, that uh, the sports world too has said, enough is too much. No, we're not going to uh, allow you to compete anymore. We're, we're cutting off uh, participation. Where we go from here is very uncertain, but this is certainly the right thing to to do right now, in my view, that's for sure. No, I think it makes all kinds of sense there. But as somebody who competed and competed successfully, of course, on the international stage, uh, as long as you did, are you, are you troubled by the fact that here we are talking today, 2022, about just about everybody now weaponizing athletics as a tool for, for the, their political differences and, and, and philosophies? I'm deeply troubled by that, Bill. I'm deeply troubled by that. It breaks my heart that we've had to abandon the, um, the practice and the ideals that really governed uh, all my sporting life, that no matter uh, our differences, because of our differences, we reach out to those from different societies and, and at least we have uh, healthy uh, competition as a way of opening dialogue. That's been broken. Uh, I hope it's not irretrievably, but that's been broken by this Russian invasion aided by Belarus. And it's going to take a long time to uh, get back, uh, in, in, in my view. Uh, but we're all feeling our way. I talked to uh, a, a very good colleague who is uh, an Olympic advisor right now, uh, just before this call, and she said, nobody knows what's going to happen. Nobody has uh, a scenario. Uh, it's all we're talking about, but nobody has any idea of what to do next. And and your point's well taken. I mean, even in those those cold, dark days of the Cold War, uh, there was still an attempt to, to reach across. And, you know, the Russian hockey teams would tour Canada and play exhibition games. And, uh, and of course, there's a 72 Summit Series. But uh, And there might have been an overtone of, of, of politics, but they set it aside there was still a, a a line between athletics and politics and that that line is, is blurred if not obsolete now <laughs> it, 
It's 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 so it, it's blurred or broken, uh, fractured, whatever the whatever the word. Uh, we're in unprecedented situation. I mean, when I first uh, competed in the United States, when Soviet athletes, the great uh, Soviet athletes like Valerie Brumel, were competing uh, in New York and Chicago, it knocked me out how these American crowds were warmly embracing these these Russian athletes and, and openly admiring them for athleticism. That would never happen today. Uh, the, the idea of, uh, of a bridge or a handshake uh, has, been, has, has been put, uh, has been thrown aside uh, in response to this Russian invasion. And I'm, I'm grappling for words because uh, I, I, I've never seen anything like it before. Um, but I should tell you that I also support uh, this decision to end this relationship uh, because of this horrible, uh, completely uncalled for, illegal and, and brutal invasion. Absolutely. And, and I can say, as your colleague said just before you joined us here, we just don't know where this is going to end up. And that's in and of itself very troubling. Uh, Bruce, it's it's always a pleasure and an honor for me to to talk to a Canadian sports legend such as yourself and get your perspective on this. Thank you so much for this today. Oh, thank you, Bill. Um, it's a horrible story, but uh, we'll we'll keep struggling to find a way a way through it. To but I, I again, I'm 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 spinning my wheels because uh, we've never faced anything like this before. Th thank you for having me on your show. Great pleasure. Thanks again. Take care, Bruce. We'll talk again soon. I hope. Uh, Bruce Kidd, of course, uh, former Olympian and uh, Canadian sports legend, uh, and of course now a uh, professor emeritus at the U of T. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We are two weeks away from the NHL trade deadline, and that's a big deal for an awful lot of people. Uh, you know, the sports networks actually set aside the whole day right now in anticipation of what's going to happen, and they've all got the phones out there trying to get their sources and find out who's going to be traded to where and what kind of an impact it's going to have. I uh, wanted to bring John Matisse into the conversation about what we might expect. Uh, John, of course, uh, writes about the National Hockey League for the score. Uh, pleasure to have you back on the program today, John. How are you doing? I'm well, Bill. How are you? Good, good. This uh, used to be a big time and, and still is to a certain extent, although I think it's uh, the focus has shifted just a little bit. But uh, there have been some historically very important trade deadline deals that have pushed teams over the top uh, years and years ago. Butch Goring to, going to, from the Kings to the Islanders probably secured their uh, birth into the Stanley Cup and, of course, eventual win there. There, there have been other situations like that, too. Uh, but it's not just, okay, who can help us at this time? A lot of the time is okay, can we fit this into the cap? I mean, money is a big player in, in trade deadline now, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And this year is, I'd say, especially... Uh, suited for that conversation because the salary cap just continues to be in and around 81.5 million. It's been there for a few years. And not only that, but there's other teams, the, the, the way that the standings have played out, there's the haves and the have nots. So you've got some contenders, you know, some real juggernauts in the Floridas and the Colorados. And, you know, you can throw Toronto in there every once in a while, depending on how they're playing. And then at yeah. the bottom of the standings, I mean, you have Arizona, Montreal. Like, there's a real, real big gap from the best teams to the worst teams, which you don't see every year because the NHL love its, loves its parity. And it, it's just the way it plays out where we've got some exciting playoff races. And, and even teams outside the playoffs, you're like, okay, well, they're building towards the future. They've got hope here. There's a lot of teams without hope. 
And those teams without hope, at least to use Arizona as an example or Buffalo, they have a lot of cap space. So they can be a third-party broker here in terms of retaining some salary for teams that are trying to acquire a player that has a big ticket, but they can't afford to take on all of the salary. So I think that's going to be a big theme here in the lead-up to the trade deadline. Obviously, when you involve a third team, things get a lot more complicated, a lot more difficult, and the team acquiring uh, the the player, the, the main player in the deal, is often throwing more out the window, more out the door to accomplish this. So, you know, uh, hypothetically or theoretically, there's going to be a fair amount of trades and there's going to be a lot that involve that third party. But also, there is a chance that we run up uh, to the deadline and these sort of back and forths between three teams instead of two teams um, ends up in, in stalemates. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there because, Bill, you hit on it really well where the salary cap is just – it has to be involved in every single conversation in the NHL in this era and especially so now when the cap hasn't risen but salaries have, have continued to rise to some extent over the last few years. There's just no money left, uh, no wiggle room there for a lot of teams. You just brought up, a, I think, a very fascinating point about that, too. Uh, because of cap space, I mean, you know, Team A may want to acquire a player from Team B, uh, but it, they can't fit it into the cap. And Team B will say, look, at, yeah, yeah, we'll eat part of the salary. In other words, we'll both pay this this player uh, just to make the deal happen. That that was a, a, like an oddity. It was like, wow, but it's, it's, it's a thing now, isn't it? Well, and yeah, you'd think it would be actually more prominent in the NHL because you see it a lot in – in the NBA all the time, retaining oh, yeah, salary yeah. and having that third team. And the NHL does it, but not to the same extent. But I feel like teams are going to be forced to go down that road this year. And it, I, like I said before, I think that's going to be a theme. I, I really do, because um, not only are most of the players available to be traded, like a Claude Giroux, for example, makes 8.275, I believe, against the cap. That's a big ticket. Any team at the top of the standings can't afford them just you know, without throwing money out the window or sorry, out the door in exchange or having the Flyers retain salary or including a third team. Like there's just, it's just the money doesn't work. And you even look at like, you know, Jacob Chikrin, a guy out of Arizona, he makes 4.6 million for the next three years. Great contract, but that's almost 5 million. How are you going to fit them in? So you can throw players out the door that sort of, you know, you're exchanging that money and, and it all works, but that's very difficult because you're probably taking someone valuable off your roster. And if not, you're taking someone who's overpaid and that receiving team, that team that you're dealing with is going to want something to sweeten the pot in taking this, this player who's overpaid. Cause it doesn't really make sense for them to trade one of the really good players uh, to acquire a, a poor player who makes, you know, similar money. So it'll be interesting. And there's, there's just so many situations out there that seem like they're headed towards a breaking point. Uh, you know, you got John Klingberg in Dallas. Well, Dallas might is probably going to make the playoffs now. They're on a bit of a run here. But Klingberg has requested a trade, and he's headed for unrestricted free agency. So what happens there? You've got Mark Giordano, the captain of the Kraken, UFA this summer, makes a lot of money, and isn't necessarily the player he was a few years ago, but still valuable, whether it's leadership or playing on a second or third pair. So those are two guys that jump out at me, Klingberg and Giordano, where <laughs> you've just got so many layers, whether it's the money or the, the, the sort of 
relationship with the current team and the potential to impact a playoff team. Uh, it should be exciting to watch here in, in this last two weeks as we lead up to the deadline. When you got a UFA like that, though, is, is there any hesitation for a club, John, to make a deal like that? I mean, there, in the past, it was like, oh, I, I, it's a rental player. I mean, he's going to play for us uh, for however deep we go into the playoffs. Uh, and th- th- probably gone after that. It's not worth the investment. Or, or did they look short term and say, yeah, it's worth the investment if we win the whole thing? Yeah, I mean, it's always risk. It's always a risk because you're throwing assets, assets out the door. You're trading something. Uh, you don't just get players for free. So there's always a risk, and usually uh, teams are willing to, to take it because it's a 32-team league. If you feel like you're part of that handful of teams that can win the Stanley Cup, like you got to go for it. you got to reward your fans, your players, and let's face it, the GMs who are making these deals, they have job security problems, right? Like, it's very rare for... <laughs> there are some guys who are around for, like, 20 years. You know, you think of Doug Wilson in San Jose, David Poyle in Nashville. For whatever reason, they're bulletproof. They're never going anywhere. But a lot of these guys turn over every three to five years. So if you're nearing that five-year mark and you're feeling the heat a little bit, you might as well go out guns a-blazing. You know, let's make it deep in the playoffs because that'll keep my job. And if that sort of hurts us long-term or even next year, well, we'll deal with it then. So it's all about perspective. And also just at some point, you're, you know, the whole point of this whole exercise, this whole point of having a hockey team, of being in the NHL, is to win the Stanley Cup. So if you have that right in front of you, like say the Colorado Avalanche does at this moment, and your team is just firing on all cylinders, and you on paper don't really need to upgrade anything, you should still do it because guys get injured. In the Colorado's instance, uh, guys get suspended like Nazem Kadri last year. So you need to have those insurance plans. So if you're saying goodbye to your first-round pick, well, that's just the cost of doing business. All right, let's uh, do a little speculating here. And, and by the way, the reason we decided to do this today instead of on drafting, we might do something there too. Uh, in in the last couple of years, we've kind of noticed, John, a lot of these deals get done now before they get to, to the 11th hour. And I don't know if it gives them more time or, you know, they're, they're more focused on exactly what they need or maybe, you know, they can swing these three team deals. And I, I think you're going to see some action uh, before uh, trade deadline day on the 21st, which is why we wanted to get this done today. And I, I'm going to start with the Leafs uh, because there's an awful lot of speculation. You mentioned, you know, if you're in that top echelon and at uh, the beginning of the season, a lot of people put the Leafs there as, as one of the top four or five teams in the league because of, of what they looked like. And there was a lot of, of hype about Jack Campbell. He had a great season last year, highly uh, unexpected, it, you know, exceeded all expectations. It's not going so well for Jack these days. Uh, and it's not going so well for Peter Mazarek, the other goaltender. Uh, it's awfully hard to find a goaltender that can jump in on a club at trade deadline day. Uh, do the Leafs try to make a deal for a goaltender here? Well, as of Friday, Kyle Dubas, their GM, said they were more likely to try to acquire a defenseman versus a forward. And then in the same breath, he's, he backed his goalies. He backed Jack Campbell and Peter Morazic. So as of Friday, and things obviously change, especially when on Saturday Campbell allows five goals, um, that's sort of the, the talking point publicly, at least. I mean, there's no way that Dubas isn't thinking about acquiring another goalie. That's certainly happening. He's thinking about acquiring a bunch of things. But the, it's just not as simple as it may seem when on Saturday night, if you're a Leafs fan, you're watching and you're going, how can this team continue with Jack Campbell as their starting goalie? Well, you need to find the solution before you throw out Jack Campbell because what's out there? Okay, you've got 
a bunch of goalies hypothetically that could come in. Well, how many of them are an upgrade on Jack Campbell? Very, very few, like very few. And you, you also have a capable backup of Peter Morazic. Like as a tandem, they should be adequate. They should be average. And we saw Jack Campbell be elite at the beginning of the season and then be terrible over the last couple of months. So, you know, you average that out and he's probably somewhere in the middle of the starting goalies across the league. So you hope he, he finds that. And obviously that's still an issue. But if we put that aside, what are the upgrades? You've got Braden Holtby out in Dallas. They probably want to move on from him because he's a UFA and they have Jake Ottinger as their starting goalie. Okay, he's, I think, $2 million. So that's that's a possible guy to bring in. But he's also having this year that's a bit out of character for Holtby. He's older. I think he's 36. He's kind of been on the decline. But this year he's he's looked pretty good. So, you know, was that an upgrade? And then you look at a guy like Marc-Andre Fleury in Chicago. You know, historically... You, you should probably acquire him based on his resume, right? Three cups. Um, how many years? Trophy. John, how many years have they been writing Marc-Andre Fleury off and said, he's over the hill now? Exactly. Uh, and, so, and he keeps rebounding and not just yeah. not just playing okay. He plays very, very well. He's having a good season with the Blackhawks. Yeah, and the Blackhawks are terrible and they're real, and not only terrible generally uh, in terms of win-loss and, and how they look night to night, but they're they're defensively, you know, one of the worst teams in the league. So you factor all that in, you go, okay, Flurry would be an upgrade if money didn't matter. But the guy makes seven million dollars, so you got to make the money work there. Uh, you know, do you throw Peter Morazic out um, in exchange? Probably. Okay, well then you're losing, you know, your your backup. Uh, so is that a good call long term because Morazic has term? So, anyways, you got to factor that in the money uh, bringing Flurry in when he technically has a no, I mean, he technically doesn't have a no move clause, but he has sort of a handshake agreement with the Blackhawks that they are going to come to him with a list of options. Hey, we're thinking about moving you here, there, wherever. And he sort of has a final say. So if he doesn't want to come to Toronto and he's been kind of hesitant to move around because he wants his family to, to lay down roots, he can just say no. So flurry might be off the table. So anyways, you go up and down the list, Bill, and, you know, how many options are out there and, and compounding that, that complication or, or making the situation even murkier is that you look around the league and you're like, Oh, Washington needs a good goalie. Uh, there's, there's, I don't know, three or four teams. And I, I can't think of all of them off the top of my head, but I did this exercise last week, three or four teams where they have goalie problems, but they're headed to the playoffs. So there's a market there and there's a lot of potential buyers and not many sellers. So does Toronto want to get involved in that? So there's all that going on where you're thinking, okay, they should probably address the goaltending, but it's not as easy as going out and, and making a phone call and you got your new goalie. It's very complicated. And then on top of that, you have Jake Muzzin, their, I guess you could say, second-best defenseman after Morgan Riley. He's on the sidelines right now. He had two concussions in a short amount of time. They don't have a timeline when he's going to come back. So are you really going to go crazy – uh, and, and acquire a goaltender when your defense heading into the playoffs could be without Jake Muzzin? Or are you going to go acquire a, a defenseman, which can also help the goaltending? Um, so that's sort of uh, what's being weighed by, behind the scenes. With, so let me, ask you, let me ask you about that. Let's let's follow up on your thing about the Leafs needing a defenseman, because you're right, Dubas has talked about that too. Uh, does the Zeno chair come to Toronto? I mean, I know he's not the Zeno chair of past, 
Uh, you know, he's 44 years old, but he's in incredible shape. He's not going to play 35 minutes for you, but he's even playing pretty well for the Islanders this year, too. I mean, he's still got some game. Uh, and that's all they're looking for at this stage. They're not looking for a guy to be number two. They're just looking for somebody to, to defend in front of the net. Uh, now, I know Lou Lamarillo, who's you know with the Islanders right now, may not be willing to make a deal with Toronto, but it, it, would they talk about it? I would just say that acquiring Chara is so far down the priority list for the Leafs. He's not going to be in your top four. He's going to be a sixth or seventh defenseman. If a uh, trade deadline day comes and you've already taken care of your bigger issues, whether that's goaltending or a winger up front, or a top four defenseman, and Char is still there, and you think you know his leadership and penalty killing can help you. By all means, try to acquire him, but he's not going to stay. He's not going to replace Jake Muzzin, and he's not going to be Jake Muzzin's partner. He's not. He's not very good anymore. Uh, he's old. He's literally forty-four years old. And if you watch the Islanders, uh, a team that's not doing very well this year, he's I don't know their fourth or fifth best defenseman. So I, I would stay away from Chara until it's sort of. Uh, it, it's time to to really brush up around the edges because he's not going to make an impact. Uh, I, a couple of other names. I've got a couple of minutes left here. I want to throw it. And, and one of them is uh, Jake DeBrusque for the Boston Bruins. Uh, he, he's been on the trading block or rumored to be on the trading block for about two years now. He's actually even requested a trade. Uh, but then he gets hot. He's hot right now. Uh, you know, he's, he scored a number of goals, big goals. Had a hat trick the other night. I think first one in his NHL career. There's talent there. I, I don't know if Boston's the best place for that talent to flourish. He had a pretty good rookie year, but has struggled ever since then. Uh, do the Bruins uh, let him go with the knowledge that he could actually flourish with another club? Yeah, it's kind of tough because they're trying to win a cup too. They're, they're not out of the playoff race. They're probably going to make the playoffs. So even though that request is on the table, they got to think about themselves as a team. And they have the power. I mean, Jake DeBrusque is under team control for, I think, the next three or four years because he's an RFA coming up. I can't remember exactly when he becomes an unrestricted free agent, but he's kind of at the whim of, of the GM there, uh, Don Sweeney in, Bo in Boston. So I think the possibility... And he's, of on, staying... and he's on the big line now. He's playing with Bergeron and Marchand. Uh, they moved Pasternak onto the second line, which is working out pretty well for them too. So, do you want to? And, and he's hot. So, do they break up that combination? There's a lot of questions there, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely, Bill. I think, I think they, you know, if, if you're, you know, I think it's a, a coin flip. I'll, I'll say at this point, if he gets traded before the deadline, um, and I think the determining factor will basically be if we trade him, are we just uh, putting ourselves as a, at a disadvantage in terms of? how our forward group looks. Yes, we want to, you know, part ways with them generally. It seems like, you know, player and team are just not on the same page, hence the trade request. And I know that Bruce Cassidy, the coach there, and Jake DeBrusque haven't always been on on the, the best of terms. So, you know, do you, do you just, you know, put your head down both sides and try to win a cup this year? And then in the summer, you deal with the rest, you move on. Or do you say, hey, we, we have something on the table here from, I don't know, contender X, and we think that we can trade Jake DeBrusque and they can give us something in return that doesn't hurt us uh, right here in the short term. So that, that's, a, that's a tricky one. That's, uh, that's got a lot of – kind of similar to John Klingberg where you've yeah. got two teams in Dallas and Boston with guys with trade requests in, but they're in the hunt there. So you got to think of yourself as a team and, and not really cater to this one single player on your team – just to please them. Unless there's a deal out there to be made that makes your team better, tough luck. 
Well, a lot of other names like Forsberg and so many others that uh, we'll have to talk about another time. We're just about uh, expired here. Uh, and, and some clubs, too. I mean, the Panthers think they got a shot this year, but they, they need some blue line help, too. So uh, let's pick this conversation up a few days from now and see what's going on, John. As always, thanks so much for this. Really appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Bill. Take care. Take care. John Matisse, uh, who writes for the National Hockey League for the score. And uh, as we say, it's two weeks today, but uh, I think you're going to see a lot of trade action in the National Hockey League before trade deadline day. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.